The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The Old Testament is filled with not simply a call to love God, but a place where we get to love God, a context. Land starts from the Garden of Eden and it ends at this vision of New Jerusalem. And we're living in between that and trying to figure out what it all means. So last time we had made it from Genesis to Jeremiah. And we pick up today in Ezekiel. We spent several weeks in Ezekiel already. Today we... And it was because of Ezekiel that I felt compelled to do what we're doing. Uh, We were in Ezekiel 36, and this is what we read. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So far, so good. We're able to read that and say, yes, this is where we're at. God has done something in my soul. He's taken out a heart of stone. He's given me a heart of flesh. There's life here. And not only did He change my heart, He gave me a spirit that all of a sudden takes that heart and and makes me live in a different way. I can honor God. But then He says this, because He's talking to Israel... Verse 29, and I will deliver you, sorry, verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. In that day of spirit indwelling, you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This whole idea of the land, the return to the land, fills the Old Testament, and trying to get our hands around, how does that relate to us? as mostly Gentiles who've been grafted into what God started with the Jews, what are we to do with these land promises? And what does it mean about the past and what does it mean about the future? So that's, where, that's what got us into this study. And I hope that the Lord will grant that I can get through Ezekiel, get through Isaiah, and set a New Testament perspective. A biblical theology of God's land. So I'm going to go through Ezekiel, and then I'm going to review where we've come from. Number one, Israel had a mission. We'll remember that God God started with a global vision. Adam was representative of all of humanity. He puts him in a garden, but then he says, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. As an imager of God, I want to put my image on display to the ends of the earth. So the the image that I had was that the Garden of Eden, where Adam was placed, was to be ever-expanding. In the garden, mankind fellowshiped with God. And they put God on display. But they weren't supposed to stay there. The garden was to be ever-expanding, to fill the earth, so that the glory of God seen in mankind might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
But then mankind sins. They get kicked out of the paradise, and God focuses on one people. That's when Israel comes in. There's Abraham, and he has Isaac, who has Jacob, and Jacob has sons, and they become the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel was always designed to be the instrument through which the big curse and darkness problem would be overcome. So God places Israel like a new Adam in a new Garden of Eden called the Promised Land. And they have the same mission. But look at how Ezekiel words it. This is Jerusalem. I've set her in the center of the nations. This is theological geography. With countries all around her. Why does he mention that? Because Israel was supposed to be on mission. The entire nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests so that they could mediate God's presence to the world. A, king, a nation, a holy nation, so that they could display God. He put them right in the middle of the ancient world, so that everything that every time Egypt and the south wanted to expand, they had to go through Israel. And every time Assyria or Babylon or Persia wanted to expand all the way down and reach their fingers into Egypt, that was the world from Egypt to Assyria. And right in the middle of it was the promised land. God put them right in the middle, but they didn't display God. Instead, what it says is she rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. So God will execute judgments in their midst in the sight of the nations. Or later in the Gog and Magog oracle, Gog will say, I will go up against the people who were gathered from the nations who dwelt at the center of the earth. The vision of the land... The promised land is that it's the center from which the glory of God will emanate. It will be ever-expanding. But Israel gets kicked out of the land, and they, they don't allow the context where they encounter the glory of God to fulfill its purpose. Well, what will happen when Jesus comes? When He embodies the people of Israel. He's the representative king who represents the people. He becomes the image of Adam. He's called the last Adam. Israel was another Adam. They were supposed to look like what humanity was supposed to look like. Israel was to image God. But now their representative king finally comes. He rises to the throne and he puts God on display. And through him, he reconstitutes a people around himself. Twelve disciples, like a new Israel with twelve tribes. They start in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, Jesus is the temple. Those identified with him become the center of the universe. They become the temple. And from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, God's glory begins to work its way out. Only in a spiritual way right now. But one day, the new Jerusalem will come to earth and everything will be transformed. Ezekiel envisioned a day when restoration would include atonement and... Not just for Israel, so this is just like it was in Jeremiah. Jeremiah's vision of the new covenant included a vision how the nations would get incorporated. Here's how Ezekiel talks about the exact same thing. I will deal with you, 
that is, wicked Israel, ethnic Israel of the Old Testament, that God made a covenant with at Mount Sinai, I will deal with you as you have done. You've despised the oath in breaking the covenant. They broke the covenant. That's just how Jeremiah 31 talked as well. They broke the covenant that I made with the fathers, even though I was a husband to them. Same, same image. They broke the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. In this instance, I think remember my covenant deals with the Abrahamic covenant. And I say that because in Leviticus 26, that exact phrase shows up word for word. I will remember my covenant that I made with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. It's a summary of how God's going to bring about the new covenant in fulfillment of what he started with Abraham. I'll remember my covenant with you in those days, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. That's another word for new covenant. Then you will remember your ways. In that day, you'll become ashamed. This takes us back to the Ezekiel 36 lesson we had, how shame is supposed to be part of the new covenant. Not that we're going to be shamed by God. No, no condemnation. But there's a place for believers in the new covenant to ever remember the seriousness of our sin and to feel the weightiness of it so that our eyes can forever turn to the, what has been won for us in the person of Christ. Christmas is about answering the shame problem. But notice what else is to happen. Everlasting covenant remembering your ways and being ashamed. And then it says, when, this is what's going to happen, there's ethnic Israel who's restored in the new covenant, but then there's sisters, Samaria to the north and Sodom to the south. So this is, once again, he's, he's talking in the realm of geography. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Sodom was... Sodom and Gomorrah, really bad place outside of the land where Lot and his wife fled from. So Sodom is very clearly an image of the nations. And then there's the northern kingdom of Israel that's been wiped out already. They're going to be brought in and no longer sisters, daughters. That's what it says. Then you'll remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, That's Samaria and Sodom. I'll give them to you as daughters. So Israel's going to have a land, but incorporated into that land are now sisters. There's a new family of God that's ever-expanding. That's the vision. Now the passage we opened our class with today. Ezekiel 36, but I'm going to read a little further. So if you've got your Bible open, you can look at it. I'm going to read what we've just read, and then we're going to jump down to verse 35. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I'll be your God. It's looking ahead to the future, Ezekiel's future. And we have to ask ourselves, if we, like Paul says, are living in the day when the spirit indwells us, what does it mean about the land promises? Do they have any relationship to what's going on today? If we as Gentiles get to enjoy the spirit that was promised to ethnic Israel when they surrender themselves to God and to their king, David, 
the future king, that is Jesus? If we get to enjoy the Spirit, does that mean we also get to enjoy the land? How are we to understand this land promise? Notice how he talks. On that day, I will cleanse, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, it's happened. Christ went to the cross definitively on a single day. All the wickedness of the world, all the wickedness of the age is born by Christ if you believe in Him. On that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I'll cause on that day the cities to be inhabited. And the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being a desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And what are they going to say about this land? They will say, this is the land that was desolate, and now it's become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. You'll remember the Bible begins in a garden, and it ends in a garden. To him who overcomes, says John, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, Revelation 2.7. We're wanting to figure out from the time Genesis 3 onward, after Adam and Eve get kicked out and that, those flaming cherubim are standing in front of the garden entrance, we're wondering always, how can we get back in? How do we get back into the temple of God? And the vision is that in the day of forgiveness, the land will be restored. And it will be like the Garden of Eden. I'm going to hop over this. Gog and Magog. Um, Ezekiel portrays Gog and Magog as the final enemy. Gog who comes from Magog. Gog is the leader of the enemy in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then Revelation, Gog is the leader of the nations. It's just a picture, a figurative picture, I think, of the ultimate enemy who's led by Satan to destroy, and then God will overcome him. Ezekiel's temple vision. The whole book ends in this way. Turn with me back to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. Beginning in chapter 40, there's a temple that's laid out with very detailed measurements. And then in chapter 44, we learn about a priesthood that's going to be in this temple. And then we even learn in chapter 45 that these priests are going to oversee sacrifices for sin. This is what makes it a little tricky. So you've got a very detailed description of a building plan of a temple. Priests that are going to be in it, and then they're they're performing sin offerings. Offerings for atonement to get us right with God. And the question is, Ezekiel is sitting in exile, the temple's already been destroyed... And what is he envisioning here? It's certainly not the temple that Haggai and Zechariah built. 
that was then expanded into what we have in Jesus' day, that it doesn't look like this at all. And so many have posited that we're still looking for a future temple that's actually going to be built, that'll have new priests and new sacrifices. But I'm not sure that that's what we're supposed to be looking for. Because the writer of the Hebrews makes it absolutely clear that once Jesus comes, there's not going to be any more sacrifices for sin. He is the definitive final sacrifice for sin. So however we understand what Ezekiel's talking about, it has to have already been fulfilled. Because we can't be looking for more future priests to be offering sin offerings. Because Jesus is that ultimate sin offering. I'm I'm struggling to try to figure out how how does this relate. I can say this. Jesus calls himself the temple. And then Paul says the church is the temple. How does that relate to Ezekiel's new temple? Then we see something when we begin to look at how Revelation talks and how Ezekiel pictures his temple. So, Ezekiel 47, one of the verses I really like in the Bible. You'll see why in a second. Ezekiel 47, he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was flowing out from the threshold of the temple. The throne of God is at the center of this temple that he's envisioning, and out of it is pouring water. Remember back in Genesis chapter 2? The Garden of Eden was pictured as on top of a mountain, and the waters of life were flowing out of it. Four rivers that went to the four corners of the globe and watered everything. Now, Ezekiel's temple, must be up on top of a mountain, is being pictured as the water of life flowing out of it. It's going to flow all the way down to the Dead Sea. Remember, the Dead Sea is the place of judgment. No life in the Dead Sea. But when the waters of Ezekiel's river flow into it, the entire sea is going to become life-filled. And then we read this. Verse 8. This water flows toward the eastern region. It goes down into the Arabah, enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water becomes fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. Not only will there be fish in the Dead Sea, I want you to think bigger. Think, what is he, what's he trying to display here? The curse is being overcome by life. Out of me will flow rivers of living water, says Jesus. Think about that. He's talking to the Samaritan woman who's asking, he's asking her for water. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water. And then he trumps the vision of Jerusalem's temple by having her say, they will worship in spirit and in truth in me. I'm the focus now. Keep that in mind. Fish will fill the Dead Sea, it says. 
Wherever the river goes, verse 9, every living creature that swarms will live, many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. And then it says this, verse 10, fishermen will stand beside the sea. I like that part. The vision of the new creation includes fishing. That's cool. I like that. So, you have a place where there was only death, and now there's life. Now I turn to Revelation, and I read how he talks in Revelation 22. Listen to what he says. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river was the tree of life with twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing for the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will not need the light of the lamp or of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will live and they will reign forever and ever. That's glory. And John, I think, is saying, Ezekiel's talking about this. We're supposed to envision... We're supposed to read this figuratively. I think not anticipating a physical building. Look what else John does. Both Ezekiel and John are guided by an angelic guide with a measuring rod and they're taken to a high mountain. Each of them on this mountain see a little bit different things, but very comparable things. Ezekiel's structure is a perfectly square temple, every side exactly the same length. What John sees is a cube, a city that is in the shape of a perfect cube. Both see the river of life flowing from God's throne. But John says... They saw no temple because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's as if the entire city has become the temple. It doesn't have an actual place, a physical structure, because the presence of God is just there. And then everyone's gathered in fellowship with this God. Do you remember Jeremiah's vision of the new covenant? The ark of God will be no more. All of Jerusalem will be the throne. And at Jerusalem will be the returned Jews and the returned Gentiles gathered under Yahweh their God and David their king. I think all of these visions are working together to give us a picture of ultimate hope when peace has been established. A peace that's been secured for us in the person of Jesus. All this suggests to me that John sees Christ and the new heavens and the new earth somehow fulfilling Ezekiel's vision. Let me summarize, and then we'll go into Isaiah. 
And I think things will become even more clear. And it will set the stage then for one or two weeks. I thought it was two weeks, but of looking at Isaiah's vision of the coming of Christ. Number one. So this is thinking back a few weeks ago. I'm just going to try to bring together where we're at so far. God's revealed purpose for mankind was that their imaging of God would expand over the globe, allowing the sanctuary of the Garden of Eden to be ever-growing. Sin resulted in expulsion from the Garden. But God reaffirmed to Noah his call for his remnant to fill the earth with his glory and to set Israel apart to serve as the agent of global blessing. Fill the earth, multiply. God blessed them and said, fill the earth, multiply. He said that to Noah just like he had said it to to Adam. And then through Noah, he sets up Abraham in the center of the world and says, through you all the world will be blessed. And then he places him in a promised land. The realm of the king would begin in the promised land, which was like a new Garden of Eden and was portrayed as God's holy mountain. We saw text that portrayed the promised land as the mountain in echoing what we saw in the Garden of Eden. So that means the promised land is itself a manifestation of what God started. And the new heavens and the new earth that are coming are themselves the ultimate climax of what God started. That means the promised land was not the end ever. It was a means for getting to the end. Always, the promised land, the vision was that it would be ever expanding, like the Garden of Eden was supposed to expand, and now the promised land is the garden that is to be ever expanding until it fills the earth. And Jesus comes as the king after Israel returns to the land. They've got to return to the land, and they do in 538 under Cyrus. We're going to see that in Isaiah directly. And then once they get in the land, the king rises from Bethlehem. And then through that king, the temple is restored. The presence of God is in their midst. People begin to gather to the temple. And then mission begins to happen as that temple, Garden of Eden, begins to expand spiritually first from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Like Adam, Israel was expelled from their paradise, but God promised a twofold restoration. You remember in the book of Jeremiah, 70 years until you return. 70 years, but they return after 70 years, and they are not all, it's not all there. And that's because Jeremiah also envisioned more than a return to the land. He envisioned forgiveness of sins when hearts would be changed. And Daniel ultimately is going to tell us, It's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks of years. The first part is fulfilled in the Old Testament. The second part is not fulfilled until the coming of Christ. Only with Jesus is forgiveness of sins secured. The return would include a new covenant that would include both transformed Israelites and nations grafted in. And the new land would be analogous to the Garden of Eden with the implication that the global expansion of the sanctuary and the blessing to all the world would now occur. And finally, Jerusalem would become God's temple that seems to expand so as to include all the restored remnant of the earth. This is the vision of the prophets. So now we come to Isaiah. 
Jeremiah's two-stage process is unpacked by Isaiah in this way. He says, you're understanding two parts. Return to the land and forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, they're going to be operative by two different agents. The first part is going to be brought by Cyrus. And Isaiah, speaking 150 years before Cyrus even comes on on the scene, names him Cyrus. But then Isaiah says, Cyrus is only the first part of the return. It'll get you back to the land. But then you're waiting for another savior called the servant. Cyrus on the one hand, the servant on the other. And the servant is all of Isaiah's focus on good news. The gospel. Jesus is Isaiah's servant king who comes not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah starts in a very sad place. He says... So I'm going to start in chapter 1 and then get right to chapter 2. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. That's his audience. It's our world as well. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. That's his audience, a people who are wounded And then at the end of the book, what do we have? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus is the ultimate answer in Isaiah to the woundedness of the people due to sin. But now we see in Isaiah chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, In the latter days, that exact phrase is what was used in Genesis 49 for when the the one would rise from Judah and the scepter would not depart. It was the phrase that was used in Numbers 24 that we read at the beginning of the service today of when the single star would rise and the enemies would be put under God's feet. Every light in the sky pointing to the day when the single star would rise on the horizon and darkness would be no more. In the latter days, it shall come to pass that the mountain, the mountain, a Garden of Eden type mountain, of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And all the nations will gather to it And many people shall come and say, Hey, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That He might instruct us, teaching us His law, that we may walk in His paths. The nations will gather to this temple. Is this simply something that we're waiting and hasn't happened yet? When the one stands up and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I am above all others. Now go and make disciples of the nations, drawing them in to me, teaching them to obey what I've commanded. 
The law will go forth from Zion. And the nations will gather to it. The New Testament authors are seeing this as being ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ. Indeed, in Isaiah 54, verse 3, he says that the law that will go forth from Jerusalem, sorry, not 54, verse 3, 51, verse 4, says that specifically it will come through this great servant king, the Messiah. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for the law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Isaiah envisions that the the law that will go out from Jerusalem will ultimately go out through God's Messiah. So we have here this vision of a high temple, Garden of Eden type experience, from which all the world that has been living in darkness will gather and find light and hope. Isaiah chapter 4. Here we see something very akin to what we read in Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 4. In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The branch, its new creation image. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. He who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be holy when the Lord has washed away their filth. Then it says in verse 5, The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. What does that sound like? The Exodus, where the tabernacling presence of God hovered over the tabernacle. That's what he's going to do. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. And then we read what we read in Jeremiah. And when you've multiplied and been fruitful in the land, they will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, where the presence of God would rest on the throne of God. The Ark will be no more. Why? Because at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. The presence of God will rest upon all of the city. Well, Isaiah's vision is the same. Mount Zion and Jerusalem are one and the same. And God's presence, His Spirit presence, will rest upon His people. They will be the temple of the living God. That the vision of the land promises are being fulfilled The center of the land was the temple, and the church of God is the temple. Isaiah 25. This is a great text. Hope-filled. A refuge for the poor. A shelter from the storm. This is our God. Chris Tomlin's song. This is the chapter he was meditating on. Verse 4, You've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. You, God, have been this. Verse 6, On this mountain, 
The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Verse 7, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that has been a shadow over all peoples. What is that covering? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all their tears from their eyes. The reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. And they will say in that day, Behold, this is our God. In chapter 26, they will sing this song in that day, You keep in perfect peace those whose mind is steadfast on you. Can we claim that today, or is it something that will only be sung in the future? Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. But that new Jerusalem is already here today. It's just in a spiritual realm. And we are already seated in that heavenly throne room in the spiritual realm right now in light of our relationship with Christ, says Colossians 4. Hebrews chapter 12, we come to the new Jerusalem right now. Not to Mount Sinai, we come to the new Jerusalem right now, but on this day, the new Jerusalem that is already ours and so that we're all of us are exiles outside of our physical turf, but spiritually already in the Garden of Eden. In this day, that heavenly Jerusalem will come to earth. And what Jesus secured, no more death, no more tears. It's already been ours, but in this day it will become realized in space and time. The very vision of Isaiah, when death would be no more, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. He's citing Isaiah 25. He's just quoting it right there. This day, new heavens and the new earth has already been inaugurated and started with the coming of Jesus. This is our hope, already purchased for us 100% in Christ. That when death happens for those who are in Christ, it is temporary pain. If we can't trust that hope, we are going to be utterly hopeless. But if we have hope upon which to stand, we rest today saying it's already yes. Every promise, yes. As our physical body wastes away, we say every promise is yes. Abraham died in hope that he would inherit the world, says Paul in Romans 4. And we are Abraham's offspring. So we do radical things like empty out our bank account to enter into adoption because the Grand Canyon vacation is going to be mine. It will come because the Grand Canyon is mine. I own Lake Superior. The Boundary Waters, my post office box is there. Already, it's there. Because I am a son of God and all of it is His. This creation is longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed. This creation, says Paul in Romans 8, is groaning. 
Because there's an organic connection between the land that we're on now and the land that will be. And right now, God in Christ has come and has established the temple. The temple of the living God, and we incorporate into that. It's a spiritual temple. It's not a building. It's not a geopolitical place on earth. It's identification with Jesus in light of the new Jerusalem that is real. But one day, what has spiritually been realized will be physically realized in the person of Christ. There's a handful of other texts that I want to point to. Um, But many of them focus explicitly on the Messiah. And it talks about the age of the Messiah. What will the age of the Messiah look like? And it portrays it in images like the Garden of Eden. So we'll pick up there next week, Lord willing. Um, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how much we need to remember the hope that we have. You care about the physical, not just the spiritual. And you've redeemed in Christ already the physical. The deterioration of our body will not last forever. You will give us new bodies that will never decay. Eyesight will be as clear as can be. physically and spiritually. We will see your beauty and savor your glory. We'll see flower petals and bees. And it will never fail to turn into worship. Because you are the great giver of all these things. You are the great sustainer of all these things. Backs will no longer be sore. Ankles will never again get twisted. Cancer will never again eat away the soul. We have a treasure. It's already here. You have said, let light shine into the darkness. We have a treasure in this jar of clay in order to show that the surpassing power comes not from us but from you. Display the worth of Christ in our midst. Keep us going in this dark world. May the songs that we sing, the candles that we light, the carols that we work through impress us this season because light has come. Dawn has entered in. And rather than lingering darkness, the light that we see truly gives us hope for noon when all the shadows will be cast aside. Thank you for the promise of place. We will not forever be only spiritual beings. We will have new bodies. We will eat real food. And we will do so with you forever. Be honored through us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. 
For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.